Welcome to Menopause Uprising, the Wellness Warrior podcast with me, your host, Catherine O'Keefe. Today, I'm thrilled to be chatting to Quiva Hartley as we delve deeper into menopause and the medical treatment options when it comes to your menopause journey. We discuss breast cancer, we discuss testosterone, how long you need to give HRT, what to expect, the multifactorial aspects of sexual health at this age and the all-important cognitive function that we need to take into account as we journey through menopause. And we do touch on the HRT shortages. Quiva Hartley. We've texted, we've insta-messaged, we've WhatsApped, we've emailed. (laughs) Finally, today we've gotten to meet. And isn't it great? And we're in person, which is lovely. I know, utterly fantastic. So I was really excited to meet you today. And, you know, I think, look, it's, it's just been so brilliant over the last kind of, I guess, four or five years, we've seen traction. But I think certainly over the last two years and with COVID, it's been good in ways to to to, to menopause. But I just think it's great to see the awareness. And, you know, I'm all for shattering the taboo and it, it is happening. You know, I think, you know, we yes, we've loads to do, but um, it's just fantastic. And it's fantastic to see the work that you're doing in your clinic in Dalkey. So do you want to just tell us a little bit more about the clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we opened in April of last year, so in 2021, and we're flying it. It's been fantastic. (laughs) It's great. We're in a lovely little location. We're just off the main street, so we're not um, kind of facing onto the main street. So we're quite private, which is nice. Um, And uh, we've grown. So we now have a team of others, myself, and I have uh, two lovely doctors working with me at the moment and two medical admin. And we're a great little team and uh, and we're open five days a week and it's and it's doing great. Yeah, we um lots of emails and and uh, <laughs> and hopefully lots of happy patients. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm hearing I'm hearing very good feedback from um, anyone I've recommended uh, to go to you. So which is which is kudos to you and oh, to, to, to Thank all, you. all the team. Um, so, I mean, look where where we're at you're probably I presume you've got a, a waiting list out the door <laughs> we do and, and we're certainly very busy but um and uh, and that's great in a way because you know I think it's lovely to see women reaching out and and taking control and looking for the information and the and the kind of management and help that they need um but uh, at the same time you know we're always able to, to fit people in and um so our wait times you know vary um but anything from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, but it really depends on the person and we have a cancellation list. So like anywhere, we're really busy, but we're doing our best. Yeah, great. Okay. And I think that, you know, I think just even that flexibility around the cancellation list, that is lovely to hear because I just know from a lot of women, they don't get that opportunity and they simply have to just go on a waiting list. So um, hopefully everyone listening, you've you've listened to that point. <laughs> yeah, we're. I think because we're a small clinic, really, yeah. you know, we're quite personalized yeah, and which you know is lovely absolutely and we look at every referral that comes in and and yeah we do our best so it's nice it's brilliant yeah brilliant and i know i did a podcast a while ago and i'll i'll share a link in this one where we went into a lot of detail with um hrt so i think today we just kind of want to you know talk about some more maybe detailed aspects um but before we do that just to get it out of the way because it's always what we're both asked about 
is the current HRT shortages. Oh, <laughs> I know, exasperation. It's so briefly, frustrating. Yeah. Briefly. I mean, my whole thing on it is simply, I go back to my economics class that I did listen to when I was in secondary school. Um, supply and demand. Mm. We the, the demand for HRT has gone off the, the, the Richter scale and the supply just isn't there. There's not enough companies manufacturing that can meet the demand. Yeah, certainly that's what we're being told by the pharmaceutical companies is that the um, the demand has increased exponentially over the last couple of years. Now, that on its own is a wonderful, positive thing, I think, because more women are having um, the right consultation, the right conversation and are being prescribed HRT when they need it or want it. Unfortunately, obviously, the supply just hasn't met that. Or, and mm. I'm sure there's maybe other factors that are contributing. Brexit might have a role. I don't know. Maybe COVID too. Maybe issues with the, you know, certain ingredients that are involved. I don't know. Um, but it is creating untold difficulty and challenges. From our end, you know, we're facing like just countless numbers of emails per day. It's really frustrating for me. I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for the patients involved. Mm. They're pharmacy shopping, but they're having to go to different pharmacies. Some I've known women who are going, you know, driving up to the north of Ireland. Yeah going abroad you know to just get their HRT prescription filled um, and then in certain cases we're switching them from one um, one product or one uh, route of administration to a different one to a different formulation which sounds straightforward and it mm. should be because a lot of the transdermal HRT types have a lot in common they're the same you know the active estrogen in them is the same but the way it is administered, the way it is absorbed can vary from person to person and from product to product. And so you get a different response and working out the exact dose from one person to the next can also, I mean, we have a rough guide, but that's it. And so that can be a challenge too. And it can be unbelievably distressing for someone to have mm. found something that works and then have to switch to something else. Very challenging. Yeah. And then it's taken away for them because like, I, I mean, I just find from, you know, so many women I've spoken to, it is a bit like hitting the, 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 the sweet spot when they find the regime of HRT that suits them and then all of a sudden then to have parts that stripped away due to shortages like that is that's and tough it, and your confidence is probably rattled as well you know you have found for a lot of women it's a really big decision it's a big bridge to cross to say okay I'm you know, I'm feeling these particular symptoms. I'm having this issue. I've decided to go down the route with with hormone replacement therapy and they get into a routine and a sort of confidence with using a particular product. And then that's, you know, mm. that rug is just taken out from mm. underneath them. It's it's extremely frustrating. And and I'm sort of at a loss as to even what to tell people to do. I don't know how to recommend a way out of this at yeah. the moment, you know. Yeah. And I know uh, I know the British Menopause Society have obviously given alternatives for when you know a, a specific brand is in shortage or whatever but I think that's what it is at right now isn't it it's just basically and I do know from talking to pharmacists as well like they can't kind of give out a six eight month supply of uh, HRT it just doesn't work like that you know say I, I take L-troxin, um for my thyroid and you know I generally get six months supply but it's a very different um, kettle of fish when it comes to HRT some of the patches I know recently were being almost rationed so they were giving allocations <sighs> to the pharmacies so they couldn't actually give more okay. than a month to each mm. individual patient who was coming in yeah I know it's yeah, very frustrating it is very tough okay <clears throat> so let's Let's um, move on from... from <laughs> Can we talk about yeah. something happier yeah. than HRT shortages? <laughs> One area I want to talk about is in relation to um, sexual health and in particular in relation to libido 
which is an area that obviously many women experience um, issues with. Just a question, do you find that do many people see an improvement in libido when they use, say, estrogen and progesterone? Or is it the addition of testosterone that helps? Okay, um, I think libido is a great place to start um, because it's so common. Yeah. I mean, where do you start with talking about something like libido? It's such a broad mm. and such a complicated issue. It's a bit like talking about mood, I think, that it's multifactorial. Yeah. And we are really, we're complicated, you know, beings. And, and libido is part of that. It's not just a biological physical response there's also you know the relationship element and how mm -hmm. you comfortable you are with your partner the other stressors in your life your you know routine during the day how fatigued you are there's all these other contributing factors as i say a bit like mood um so it can be often difficult to say to someone look i know you're you're having an issue with your libido or you have found that your sex drive has dropped i'm not sure that it will always be improved with a hormonal approach on its own I think it's really important to address sleep patterns relationship other stressors mental health all these mm. other things that feed into it and then when we're talking about the physical aspect I kind of break that into two one is the drop in estrogen as you've pointed out that we are familiar with now that happens with menopause and the kind of estrogen and progesterone component fair enough and the other is the drop in testosterone again really important but the other bit of the puzzle is the actual is vaginal health yeah. itself. Yeah. And I find that that maybe gets overlooked a little as well. So there is absolutely no point in increasing someone's libido, having them feel very sort of, you know, interested in sex again and and wanting that sort of pleasurable aspect, but not being able to actually have any pleasure because their vaginal health isn't there. Mm. Oh, it's painful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And even with the so with vaginal atrophy, I hate the word atrophy, but that's the word that we're supposed to use. So the changes that happen to the vaginal tissue with menopause, we see a, a drop in blood supply that happened uh, to, to this area, to the vaginal tissue itself. And with that, we see a reduction in it's a bit like falling asleep on your arm. We see this reduction in nerve, you know, sensitivity of the clitoral region. So the clitoris itself becomes less sensitive. So as well as vaginal dryness, painful sex, you know, we see narrowing and shortening of the vaginal opening, the vaginal canal, all of that contributes too. So testosterone is not going to fix that. Yeah. So you have to come at this from a sort of multi-angled approach. Mm. Um, but in answer to your question, I think there is definitely a cohort of women who find that estrogen improves their menopausal symptoms, their their mood improves, their sleep improves, their overall well-being and zest for life improves and libido sort of comes along with that. Or with that estrogen, they find improvement in these vaginal symptoms, their clitoral response improves, the sensation improves, their comfort with sex improves, and that improves libido. And then you have a percentage of women who need testosterone, and that's a separate thing altogether. Yeah, yeah. And outside of um outside of using hrt is there other forms of medication that can be used for libido or is that something that's common in ireland at all definitely not common in ireland no okay. unfortunately we don't have the kind of female version of viagra that like everyone is kind of <laughs> looking for what is important is actually to do a medication review and look for things that might be negatively impacting libido um, so one of the more common ones would be an, an SSRI, which is a type of antidepressant, mm -hmm. probably the most common type of antidepressants that we prescribe. People might be familiar with isotalopram and 
like Lexapro and these kind of yeah. medications. So, um, and lots of people are on these medications, but they are known to have a negative impact on libido. Um, but the other kind of less known, if you like, so oral estrogen and whether that's as part of HRT or it's part of your contraceptive pill will actually have a negative impact on the production and synthesis of testosterone from your ovaries. And so that has an impact. And it actually, it, it increases the production of a protein called sex hormone binding globulin from your liver. Mm. And that goes around and mops up some of your testosterone so that it's no longer usable and available. So it's as if we've artificially lowered your testosterone. Right. And that can have yeah. a negative impact. Yeah. So, and it, like, I mean, that's something we don't think about is like, okay, before we start you know, looking at anything, let's look at what medication you're actually currently on and whether there is contra, you know, whether it's having an impact. Mm. Um, I think that's really, really sage advice because uh, sometimes we just get into the habit and we don't think, is there something else? We're, and we probably blame poor old menopause for everything. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> you know, God love it. <laughs> um, okay, great. And so just when you mentioned testosterone there, you know, what are your thoughts on testosterone? Because, you know, it is still a relatively new um, medication. And my understanding right now, there isn't an officially approved female version. Yes, so testosterone is quite controversial. I think we're only we're only sort of tip of the iceberg with what we know about testosterone at the moment. I, my biggest sort of bugbear, if that's the right word, with testosterone is that people think it's kind of a, a fix-all or like, you know, that it, I suppose it, talking about libido, well, if I go on testosterone, it'll be like flicking a switch. And it's not okay. because it's much more complicated than that. Mm, mm. And we, the other very frustrating thing from my perspective is we have different guidance from different, you know, bodies across the globe. So the British Menopause Society's approach to prescribing testosterone is actually a bit different to the International Menopause Society or NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, where I would have done my training. They had a different approach too. And I think that probably reflects that we don't know enough about it at the moment. So there's no consensus. Yeah. What we do know is that it seems to be a really important hormone for loads of different reasons and it's a hormone that we have more of than anything else which is also news to a lot of people we think of it being a really male hormone it's Mm -hmm. not we make about three times as much testosterone as we do anything else as you know um and that it falls uh, in a different way over the course of our reproductive life when we compare it to something like estrogen Mm. so it seems to be this like gradual decline from your mid-30s but it's not a precipitous kind of off a cliff effect like we'd see with estrogen And the other really weird thing is that there's been a couple of Australian studies showing that it starts to rise again in your mid 60s and early 70s. So I don't know, make of that what you will. I don't know what to kind of (laughs) read into that, but there you go. We take that that as good news, I suppose. (laughs) We don't really know why that happens. Yeah. And the other thing, I suppose, is that as your testosterone levels are falling, they're falling really slowly for the majority of women. And so they actually end up getting some side effects of having a lot more testosterone than estrogen. The gap between these two hormones widens through your 50s because estrogen is falling much more rapidly. Mm. And that's why we see acne and excess hair growth and these things that kind of bug us in our 50s. We can all relate to the excess hair growth. (laughs) And and (laughs) hair loss, you know, on our head and and acne, which is something I would have had. And um, and so that's from kind of becoming more testosterone heavy almost. Um, And so it can be really confusing then when you're trying to explain to someone, look, I think you might benefit from the addition of testosterone. So the first thing would be, look, not everybody benefits. Yeah. So it's not an across the board. Whereas with estrogen, we know, look, if everything else being equal, we if you know your bone health will benefit across the board there's no woman who won't get some bone protection from estrogen yeah testosterone's different not everyone's going to get benefit from it yeah 
Yeah. The IMS, the International Menopause Society, their approach is, look, I think, you know, it's judicious use. I, we should be measuring baseline testosterone levels in some cases, but not all. So that's a bit frustrating as well. I mean, that is, isn't it? Because again, that's not clear. It's blurry. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, so if, if, if someone is on testosterone, though, isn't it kind of a good thing, a good practice to monitor their testosterone levels? Absolutely. So that's different. So you could argue measuring a baseline testosterone level is to serve two purposes. One is to make sure that you're not walking around with a high testosterone level to begin with that okay. will then push higher. Yeah. Um, but the argument against that is that the number of women walking around with a naturally very high testosterone level is just minute. Right. Yeah. The other argument for doing a testosterone level at baseline is that it will help us figure out if someone is going to benefit from it. So if your okay. testosterone level is really low, well, then you might be more likely to, we can kind of counsel you and say, look, I think you're more likely to benefit from testosterone than someone with a kind of normal inverted commas testosterone level to begin with. Anyway, so that's a bit controversial, but everyone who is on testosterone should be having blood tests at least every six months. Okay. And one thing just to say, because I'm forever saying this to every woman I come into contact who is starting the HRT journey is HRT requires patience. <laughs> like I, I often equate it to, I remember um, when my first child was born and I can remember walking around Marley Park and I was so sleep deprived because he was awake most nights uh, when he was younger and I invariably I'd meet somebody else and be like oh my child sleeps all night long and I, I always think <laughs> it's a bit like that oh my HRT it was fantastic from day one but actually yeah there's so many women that's that to me is the, the lesser story because for many women I always kind of say you've got to have patience and in your head when you start you should think this is possibly going to take three to six months to get right now you might say I'm over cautious but I just I see so many frustrations and I see so many women who give up and I'm kind of saying if, if you decide to go down this route you need to be committed at least for a minimum of three months. Totally agree. And I think that's true of standard HRT with estrogen plus or minus of progestogen that, you know, it can take three to six months. I totally agree. It's probably even more true of testosterone, actually. Um, and that's if you look at sort of the international studies, that's what they've shown is that most women will not have much of an effect until the third month. Right. And it can take for some women, they, they haven't, if they're kind of scoring their symptoms and how they're improving, you don't see any change until they get to month four or five or six. So an adequate trial is really three to six months. Yeah. Now, dependent on if someone gets negative side effects or they're not happy or, you know, then obviously yeah. you stop it sooner. But um, and that's safe to do that as well. Mm. So it's very little kind of health downside to doing that um so i totally agree and i feel really sorry for that i've women who come in who are they're crushed with they're devastated because i've these awful symptoms i'm on my hrt now you know six to eight weeks and i feel no different mm. and it's the i think it's almost like the loss of something that that was going to help them and they feel well i think it, their their best friend can be on it and can have a miraculous yeah, yeah. A, you know huge transformation and then you know there are and, and I know you probably see this there's some women where HRT just does not suit them for yeah. whatever reason you know yeah. or maybe they just don't hang in long enough you know but when we look at that three to six months is it fair to mm. say then that really the addition of testosterone if you are looking at it you need to give the other two time to bed down 
definitely yeah. so that my approach would be unless someone comes in saying my only issue is low libido which is the only thing we actually have evidence for testosterone being any good at although we've anecdotal reason to think that it might be helpful for things like what people term brain fog right. or the yeah. kind of cognitive um issues and maybe even energy levels thing like things like that but low libido is the only thing that we know it's actually genuinely we can kind of you know pull up data to prove that it's good for that in the absence of that though for 99.9 percent of women i agree we would start with you know kind of normal hrt so i suppose estrogen you know with or without a progestogen and i i wouldn't be keen to start testosterone until they've had a good mm. three to six months on that because mm. you need to then see at that point what you're left with yeah. almost yeah lots of women will approve their libido will improve on its own yeah potentially yeah it really depends what the underlying cause is yeah and plus because obviously if it is vaginal dryness then that has to be addressed with local estrogen oh I you wish know, we could sort of get buses to drive around like with banners I'm and so like witty on that pulling stuff behind them in this like sky writing about vaginal estrogen I know because it's so important i i i often joke um you know that it'll be on my gravestone don't self-diagnose thrush because so <laughs> many women will go into the pharmacy self-diagnosed as thrush uh, obviously exasperate the vaginal dryness that's there already and you know i know i've spoken to brenda moore and uh, dr brenda moore in cork about this before and brenda would say i think I think the research says one in two women will experience vaginal dryness at some stage in menopause. But I think Brenda and I have discussed it and I think it's more like at every stage. Yeah. Nearly every woman will experience it at some stage. I've had it, yeah. you know, um, and I know so many women. And it you manifests know. differently for different people, you know, and Brenda's fantastic, by the way, just to yeah. like, like, <laughs> the world of her, she's absolutely brilliant. Um, but um, yeah, it manifests differently. So for some people, it's the kind of classic, I feel dry and sex is uncomfortable. And for other women, it's more bladder symptoms. So mm. I'm peeing a lot. I'm up at night yeah. to pee. I don't have control over my bladder like I used to. Or for others, it's itch. Um, which is a huge thing yeah. as well and that's oh, where the thrush comes in Definitely, you know yeah it's assuming because i'd often say to women well have you looked have you checked no they're just going on the fact they feel itchy. inflammation and itchy yeah or you know they they maybe talk to someone and thrush is maybe the first thing that they're that they're treated for and then after that it's assumed it's atrophy and they're given vaginal estrogen but actually it's a skin condition that's affected the vaginal region vulval region um which is more common we see more common skin conditions happen through menopause as well and it can be misdiagnosed so it's really important to be examined yeah so if you haven't responded to thrush treatment for example or you're on some estrogen and you haven't responded someone needs to have a look you need to be examined yeah really important and that examination ideally is going to be done by your doctor but can, can a pelvic health physio also do the same examination or is it really your doctor you're relying on for that probably both, both like pelvic yeah. health physios are absolutely oh, fantastic yeah. at what they do they're brilliant at assessing the musculature the innervation the pelvic floor the tone um, and its functionality, how it's working um, and the kind of vulval and vaginal health in general. But, you know, I think it's no harm to maybe check in with your GP if you're comfortable too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, uh, so we kind of, we're touched on really kind of the, the quite a few things there, but I know these are, these are issues that come up a lot that, you know, women ask me a lot about. Another issue is in relation to breast cancer. So where you have 
um, a, a woman who's had unfortunately had a history of breast cancer. What advice can you give there in relation to, you know, symptoms they may be experiencing and what are the options that they can look at? So uh, similar to what we were saying about testosterone, the biggest challenge uh, from kind of my side of the fence with breast cancer patients is the lack of data. Mm. So it's very hard to talk to anyone in certainties about treating menopausal symptoms after breast cancer because that research hasn't really been done. Yeah. No one out there has taken a, a you know enormous group of women who've had different types of breast cancer and put them on HRT and then followed them up long term. That data doesn't exist. So that's um, that's challenging, I guess. Mm. Um, and I think you know after going through something like breast cancer treatment, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth to come out the other side of it and then be left with really. Crappy, intense yeah symptoms menopausal symptoms yeah. and again top to toe like it could be mood related sleep related yeah. it can be physical symptoms dreadful hot flushes um vaginal vulval symptoms and everything in between and libido yeah. and libido absolutely and again that's very complicated isn't it mm. because you mm. know women who've had maybe surgery or mastectomy you know yeah. or they've had changes in their physical appearance because of their treatment their, their body confidence has changed. Maybe their relationship with their partner has changed and you see a drop in libido kind of as, as part of that overall picture. So it's all very complicated. Um, and some women who are on, if they've had an estrogen receptor positive cancer might be on medications like an anti-estrogen. Um, so people might be familiar with something like tamoxifen yeah. um, or another one called anastrozole. So there's two different types of medications that would be commonly prescribed. Unfortunately, those anti-estrogens, they're, they're very, very good at preventing a recurrence of breast cancer. But they're also very, very good at giving you dreadful menopausal yeah. symptoms that are more severe than kind mm -hmm. of we would see in kind of a more natural menopause. So these are very difficult patients. I think the first place to start is to really open the discussion and I suppose talk about someone's goals, their priorities, their values. For some women, all they want is reassurance that like, you know, these symptoms will be temporary or what what options are available to them. For other women, they are very set against, I, I don't ever want to take hormones again. I yeah. And that's fine. And yeah. for other women, they're, you know. And it's very understandable, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think defining at the very beginning what someone's values are, what their core values are, what their goals are, what symptoms are bothering them. It's not really up to me to say we'll have to treat those hot flushes when in fact it's the vaginal dryness that's bothering them or whatever it might be. Yeah. So setting that out early is really important. Um, and also I, I would link in with an oncologist or breast surgeon for every patient who comes in. Mm. Um, so I don't sort of go off on a solo run. I think it's, and their GP, I think it's yeah. really important to have a kind of um, collaborative um, multidisciplinary approach. Treatment. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's for the patient's benefit mm. too. And then, you know, we have a tendency, I suppose, to lump like all breast cancer under one umbrella, but actually they're very different types of breast cancers. They're very different diseases. There's, you know, hormonally positive breast cancer that have receptors for things like estrogen and progestin and even testosterone. And then there are hormone negative breast cancers. Um, and then your family history, your other risk factors, how long you are since your diagnosis, how far away you are from your diagnosis, all these different things sort of contribute to your potential risk of recurrence and the impact HRT might have on that. Um, so they're important factors to discuss too. And then, I mean, they're like any other patient. They, you know, there's no reason we can't discuss lifestyle changes, non-hormonal mm. medications and HRT for every patient who comes in. Mm. It's a discussion. It's not, you know, me telling someone what to do. It's, a, it's about having that conversation. And informed choice. Absolutely, yeah. Now, to a point, I think it's really important. You know, I would sometimes ask, 
a patient to bring someone with them if they feel comfortable doing that so that I find I don't know about you but if if I'm in a consultation and I'm the patient I won't often remember all yeah. of, you know I, so I think it's a if, big you know, time particularly with brain fog look let's oh, be honest you're, you're just you you might just take in parts of it but the chances of you taking in everything you're not going to and it's such a huge decision for someone who's had breast yeah. cancer yeah but the take home message is you know we're in a very different place now with HRT to where we were mm. HRT is it is contraindicated so if you look globally there's a consensus that HRT is contraindicated for women who've had a history of breast cancer so that is a starting point but there are definitely women who in the right circumstances in consultation with their oncologist etc and maybe having failed other non-hormonal approaches come to a point where they feel comfortable where the benefit outweighs the risk for them Mm. and that's a a difficult decision but it's one that's come too slowly and gradually not to sort of dive in at the deep end yeah so everything is available but we've excellent non-hormonal options as well that can be looked at yeah and I think that's it's just that informed choice and having the education and knowing that you can have the support like through you know working like with you Cueva or one of your doctors to have that very honest conversation is really important I think it evolves I think really more than anything it's not a you come in you have a consultation decisions made and that's it yeah I find in the patients that we've had come through the clinic, it's it's evolving. They have their initial consultation. We give them information. They have a mull over it. We contact their oncologist. We arrange a follow-up a couple of weeks later for a phone call, usually. Check in with them. Have they further questions? And so on. And it's just mm. a sort of gradual stepping stone effect to get to something that, that you know, improves where they are. Um, one but, of the, the frustrating things is, you know, treating something like hot flushes is relatively straightforward with the non-hormonal approach. It's all the other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's more difficult, isn't it? Particularly when you come to, you know, uh, the psychological aspects. Well, I know there's non-hormonal approaches there too, but like, you know, the vaginal, um, vaginal issues as well. You know, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of symptoms as we know of menopause. That's it. That's the problem. <laughs> that is the problem. And we're quite yeah. good at treating hot flushes and night sweats and they're often the core issue. And the, you But know, they're the tip of the iceberg. Kind of. Yeah, I yeah. agree. So yeah. some of the other things can be a bit more challenging and maybe that's where the individualization and a kind of more holistic approach really is, comes in. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, when we just talk about that, there's a growing body of people I see this I see it here in Ireland I see it globally I see it in the UK but there is a growing body of people who feel that every woman should be on HRT what are your thoughts on this (laughs) and I know it's a difficult one but that's a loaded question (laughs) (laughs) but what what are your thoughts on it because look I'm 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 seeing it I'm seeing it across um, social media and I'm getting questions on it and I'm looking at it from the perspective of the the woman on the street looking at it, thinking well what who do you who do you follow what you know what's the correct route to take but you know what what are your thoughts on it I think my role I think and and the kind of doctor role in this in this whole area is to interpret the guidelines and evidence and data that we have and and sort of help a patient come to a decision that's right for them it is mm. not our job to tell every woman they should be on HRT it's not our job to tell every woman they cannot be on HRT 
And I think you can only, like, I feel really wedded to the evidence base. I think that's really important. It's an Mm -hmm. area of medicine that is sort of vulnerable to lots of non-evidence based information being handed out left, right and centre, which just confuses the situation so much more. So from our perspective, at the moment, HRT is recommended for women who are eligible for it, which is actually the vast majority of women and who are symptomatic Mm. and whose benefit outweighs the risk. And the risk is really small. Yeah. And that's something that we talk about with everyone who comes in about, you know, breast cancer risk being the kind of obvious one. And we talk about how low that risk is and how it's duration related. And so the longer you're on HRT, the more you're going to have impact on your breast cancer risk. But really up to about four or five years, we don't see significant statistical changes in the outcomes of breast cancer incidents for women. And the death rate from breast cancer doesn't change for women on HRT. And the type of HRT you're prescribed and when you're prescribed it all influences where that benefit and risk balance mm. lies but we should not be recommending HRT at this point in time although that may change I will swallow my words down the line <laughs> of other data concerned. but at the moment we shouldn't be recommending HRT just because we shouldn't be saying yeah. to women oh you should be honest because everybody else is or just to diminish your risk of cognitive decline or we don't have that evidence yet Okay, and I think that's there's a few things there that ties into we have a lot of evidence around the protective aspect of estrogen when it comes to our bones Mm -hmm. and also when it comes to our heart. And we know, unfortunately, that um, the leading cause of death of women, not just in Ireland, but across the world is cardiovascular disease. Um, and then that brings me on to the third area, which you just mentioned, which is the cognitive side. This is an area, um, as as you know, my mom has dementia. It's an area I've had huge interest in and I've spoken to Dr. Lisa Moscone. Oh, she's fantastic. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, and that's another area that's getting a lot of attention at the moment. But the studies are limited mm-hmm. in relation to the impact of HRT on the brain. Um, And I think this, you know, that's an area we've got to be very mindful of that, um, to my knowledge, there isn't kind of completed studies that basically can say that HRT will prevent Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, it's um, I think one of the challenges is that a bit like looking at breast cancer risk and other things, when we're saying HRT, you know, are we talking about oral estrogen? What type of progestogen are you talking about? Are we using our data? And it's all from the Women's Health Initiative, which is oral estrogen and a very old fashioned progestogen mm-hmm. back in the 90s. Have you know, we're missing data looking at what we tend to prescribe now, which is the transdermal Absolutely. Uh, forms, plus usually a much safer more breast friendly, more, um, you know, considered a sort of more modern type of progestogen. If, if a woman is going to be on, if she has a uterus, if she has her womb still, and she needs to be taking progestogen for that reason. Um, so we have a lot of unanswered questions. Looking at modern HRT, what impact does that have on risk compared to what we used previously, where a lot of our current data still comes from is from old fashioned HRT. Mm. And then the other thing, so timing. So a bit like you had mentioned with heart health and this concept of a window of opportunity. So if someone is less than 10 years from their last period, if they're under the age of 60, we know that they get cardiovascular benefit from, um, from giving them you know, additional estrogen. 
And so the question is, is there an equal window of opportunity when it comes to something like Alzheimer's dementia or cognitive decline in general? That's unanswered mm. at the moment. Does it matter what progestogen we use? Does it matter whether the estrogen is oral or transdermal? Does it matter your own background risk factors? Loads of unanswered questions. What we do know is was before you're looking at the impact of HRT on brain function is to look at the impact of estrogen on brain function. And at least we've done that. We have established there is a really definite link and there's really lovely, elegant studies that have been done in the States that have looked at both cognitive scores. So things like verbal fluency scores and different things like that and have demonstrated that women who've had surgical menopause or women who've had um, a very premature menopause they have similar decline in verbal fluency or cognitive scores to women who've had natural menopause. So what they've shown is it's not age related. Right. OK. It's not an aging yeah. thing. Oh, I hit my 50s and it's not an aging thing. It's totally related to estradiol levels. Mm -hmm. So that's quite nice. And they've also shown with imaging, so MRI imaging of the brain or PET scans, that you can see changes in vascular flow in different parts of the brain. Um, there was one sort of interesting theory that came from a study in the States looking at your, our hippocampus which is where a lot of our verbal functioning happens and our short term memory. word recall that all we that. all struggle with. <laughs> you're like tip your tongue and you're trying to think something and the, and the lack of confidence that comes with that. You know, mm. it can be, really rattle your confidence mm. when you feel I'm going to meet someone and I can't think of their name or like the embarrassment of trying to get up and not think of the word when you're yeah. in front of all of yeah. people. Um, so they've shown that we that women tend to be um, we, we use our left hippocampus so the left hippocampal part of our brain a lot in our reproductive years that's kind of much more active and bright on these scans and when you get to menopause at whatever age that happens and you see this drop off in estradiol the right hippocampal area starts to come online like a backup generator almost it's compensating for the left hippocampus that's now suffering from this loss of estradiol what they showed with these studies was that women who were given estrogen um, and don't ask me what type, I can't remember, was it oral or dermal, but they were given, <laughs> not that good, but they were given estrogen anyway. They showed that their the drop off in left hippocampal function was reduced. Okay. So it seems to be mm. protective mm. as opposed to it wasn't helping them bring the right side online quicker. It was helping them not lose what they already had. And that that feeds into this potential for a window of opportunity. And that that might apply to we might be better ultimately down the line and we need more research, but it might be the case that women need estrogen to kind of give them that protection in perimenopause, late perimenopause, more than the benefit they're going to get from taking it when the horse is bolted and their periods have stopped and they've now had a significant drop off in estradiol and their left left hippocampal function has declined. Right. OK. OK. And I know Lisa talks about that recalibration, that resetting of the of the brain that happens, which I think is kind of nice because uh, she, you know, I think her research to date has indicated that um, for the majority of women, it's a resetting of the brain. And when they come out of it, you kind of you go back to normal levels. Now, that's not for every woman, mm. but they, but for the majority of women. But as you say, um, I, I know she's a year and a half away from completing her research or yeah. thereabouts. So I think that's going to be really important. And she's focused a lot on Alzheimer's dementia. So yeah. she, and yeah. I think her most recent research was looking at, look, there's definitely um, a subset of women who carry um, the, the APOE yeah, and um, an apolipoprotein E um, uh, genetic kind of variant that seem to benefit more from estrogen than potentially other women who don't carry this genetic variant. Mm. 
will so like there's just so much data that we're kind of missing and so many unanswered questions but certainly suspicion that you know that HRT might be beneficial or protective but we don't have that evidence yet and it's back to that the window of opportunity isn't it which you always come back to it seems to be starting it at the right age of 60 you know before you hit 60 certainly seems to be one of the key guidelines that well it makes sense if you think about it like with Alzheimer's dementia and building up these beta amyloid kind of protein plaques that can happen in your brain that contribute to that are part of developing Alzheimer's dementia but in a similar way if you look at atherosclerosis which is the kind of fancy medical term for building up plaque and blockages in your arteries we know you can't reverse them Mm. and so the whole idea is that if we get in with estrogen early we might prevent them from building up in the first place or reduce down some of the risk factors that cause them yeah so that's why earlier is probably better and even looking at cognitive scores they tend to be worse in late perimenopause most people peak with their cognitive decline through menopause in their late perimenopause so the couple of years before their periods have stopped they stop yeah yeah that's kind of the when you're getting to the top of the mountain (laughs) before before you reach a plateau if there is such thing as a plateau I'm not quite sure I'm not quite there yet I'm up I'm climbing the mountain okay um so and what so what would you say to um what would you say to a woman who possibly has no symptoms are they so mild we do know there's 20 percent of women that experience no symptoms very lucky to them um but you know are maybe for women whose symptoms are mild what advice do you give to them it should they be thinking about hrt or what would you say i still think it's a conversation that's important to have because you know symptomatology is is part of this discussion and looking at maybe bone health because that's where mm-hmm. we know that HRT probably has the biggest physical benefit um and looking sort of discerning where their risk is so are they do they have have they had a recent DEXA do they need a DEXA have they risk factors for bone density loss um like a low body mass index or a history of smoking um or parental history of hip fracture those you know or being on steroids for long periods of time so you know teasing through that a little and trying to see well is this someone who would benefit from estrogen in another way um and making sure that vaginal health and vulval health yeah, is talked about yeah. as well because that gets forgotten so much so having that conversation but if you come to the end of that with the conclusion that look this is someone who's not very symptomatic has good bone density i'm not sure that hrt i i don't know how you sort of justify hormone therapy to some degree in a patient like that I mean I'm open to it and I've certainly prescribed HRT for women who are kind of it's almost a curiosity I want you know sometimes it's hard to to know (laughs) and it's also like you adjust so slowly and sometimes the negative symptoms happen so gradually you don't even realize they're there until they're gone and they're improved so I think a trial of HRT is always something that's worth a discussion to then make a decision on benefit and risk but I wouldn't be kind of shouting it from the rooftops. I think every woman should be on HRT. I don't. I don't think every woman will benefit. Mm, mm. And so I think it has to be individualized. Yeah. And I, I think that 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 echoes what I see because it, it um, like I have spoken to so many women who have tried HRT and they have gone beyond the three to six months and they've just decided no, for whatever reasons it wasn't for them. And then we also know that the personal choice comes into place Mm. where you know a woman will just decide and I think that's something that I think every woman loves to have choice and it's really important but I think you know it's having an informed choice is the the key 
part of it, you know. I think the only thing that would hold me back from prescribing HRT is if I felt I was doing medical harm. So if I felt I'm going to give this some this, you know, person sitting in front of me medical harm, I'm going to increase their risk of liver failure or I'm going to increase their risk of breast cancer beyond a point where I feel comfortable or, you know, I I other than that, yeah, I totally mm. agree. I think women should be allowed at least have we need to stop infantilizing um you know patients and sort of and allowing them have the information and then a discussion but you see i think your approach quiva is you know if we think i'm just generationally if we go back there wasn't much of a conversation with your doctor really it was you go your doctor no you know would give your prescription you don't question mm. now we know that women are questioning now which i think is powerful and i think that's what you're encouraging and i think that is really important because it's so much of a more of a collaborative relationship if you can sit down together and decide okay well listen this is what we're going to do we're in it together because the other thing about menopause is particularly in the early days it can feel really lonely yeah, of um, course, yeah and unless you've got a team or you know tribe behind you who you know have got your back mm. you know i think that's such an important part of um you know this these years for for any woman i do think what you said there about it's a it's a collaboration that's the important thing it should be we're on the same side mm. i think sometimes we're almost sending a message of like you you know you should be questioning which women absolutely should they should question but it doesn't have to be confrontational it should no. be yeah like it should be a conversation i you know i have questions like that that i want answered mm. without it being we're on the same team like my only <laughs> desire like the only outcome i'm interested in is that i have a patient who feels better and is healthier yeah you know and we don't we want to do no harm at the end of the day but like if i have patients who feel well i have a very happy clinic to work in so yeah. we're working towards the same end point or end goal so i think it is about that it should be a collaborative feel that's how it should feel yeah it's collaborative we're on the same team you know with the same with the same goal yeah i think a hundred a hundred percent um just before i have another question i want to ask you but before we go on to that one <laughs> bio body identical yeah Oh my God, seriously, <laughs> seriously, because I'm researching for the book and have been for a few months. I read one paper, it's body, another bio, mm. body, and they're telling me it's the same thing. I'm like, oh, mother divine, seriously. <laughs> so so both of these terms are useless. Yeah, I mean, not they're marketing terms. They're not medical terms at all. Yeah. Um, so in Canada, um, where I worked previously, we had quite a lot of bio or body whatever you want to call it we had a lot of <laughs> B yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose bio is probably the, the, the more correct term for the type so we had a lot of bioidentical HRT in Canada which I don't see here thankfully um, and it's like I mean it's already bloody confusing with all the different estrogens and preparations and different ways of taking different, and then poor like poor women you kind of chuck in this extra like terminology to yeah. baffle them you know and 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 the, I think even the prescribers find it confusing too so I think the take home message, like the, the British Menopause Society have separated this out into there are body identical hormones. So these are hormones that have a chemical structure that is basically a replica of what your ovaries produce, hence the term, they're body identical. But we don't, in reality, we don't use those terms because it, you know, we don't say about, you know, L-troxin, it's body identical or yeah. insulin, it's body. So we don't tend to use it in any other sphere um so i shy away from using body identical if possible good good i wish we could just get rid of it all together yeah, yeah. sort of hrt time. and big then there's non-regulated hrt exactly and and yeah 
And that's the way it should be split. So body identical just refers to um, when we're prescribing something that has a chemical structure identical to what your body produces itself. If you were to shove it under a microscope, you know, what's in the dermal estrogens and you were to take estrogen out of your ovary and shove that under a microscope, they would be molecularly the same. Absolutely. Bio-identical is non-regulated formulations. Traditionally, they're made up by the pharmacy, traditionally. So, and in in Canada, we had what are called... Compounding pharmacies. Thank you, can think of the word. (laughs) Hence the compounded bio-HRT is actually the kind of full term it's given to. And so, now, you know, I don't know what they actually do, but in my head, they're kind of there with the pestle and mortar. Like, you know, they're making up these individualized preparations. One of the main issues with bio-HRT is that often they'll give you your progestogen as a cream. And because absorbing progestogen through your skin varies wildly from one person to the next, and we're using the progestogen to protect you from getting womb cancer, we cannot rely on the skin approach. So no one should be on bio-HRT. You need to be on something that is regulated. Mm. It is, Mm. you know, adherent to pharmaceutical standards, all the rest. And I know exactly what you're getting and what dose you're getting every time I prescribe it. Yeah. And that's where, when you mentioned the cream, uh, that's where we see it all over the web. And I'd often get uh, people send me pictures of these different creams, you know, you know, any ideas on this? Should I take this? And I, like you, I'm like, run run a (laughs) hundred miles away because it's not regulated and you know I have to say um, I have yet to hear from a woman who has found any benefit from these creams and that's been honest Um, and I know many women who've tried them yeah Um, but her wallet is lighter yes big time yeah yeah Um, and the other thing a lot of these and I'm sort of tiring them with the same brush so maybe that's unfair but a lot of these places will also recommend saliva testing to get your your levels of uh, like the Dutch test. Oh, don't get me started on the Dutch test. Yeah, so no evidence. It's not useful. It's giving you a load of information that's inaccurate, not reliable, and in no way of actual benefit. We do occasionally use estradiol serum, blood estradiol levels for women who are either very very young, and we're you know we have our knickers in a twist about making sure that they are getting enough estrogen to give them bone protection, yeah. or women who are non-responders. Okay. Okay. Really so their symptoms doses. aren't changing. Yep. I've had no response. I'm on a 150 of a patch and I've had no improvement in my hot flushes and night sweats. And I want to know, is that because we're barking up the wrong tree altogether? Is something else going on? Or is it just that you're the, you're the enzyme in your skin to metabolize and break down estrogen isn't there properly. And so you're not absorbing what I'm giving you. And so an estradiol level can be helpful for those women. Outside of that, there's no need whatsoever to be individualizing it you can measure an estradiol level today and tomorrow and get two yeah exactly exactly and that here's another question for you so um the fluctuations that happen so you know you can be like i know from my own bloods uh 300 one blood test 3280 on another blood test that those wild fluctuations that we see um and that's normal but all they do is create anxiety and I have women who they'll ring for you know they've had a blood test with their GP and they'll say my estradiol level is whatever it is and they're you know anxious about it it was it's lower than it was two months ago why do I need to be on more Mm. and the question really is how are you feeling yeah yeah. that's the question that counts now obviously there's extremes and if someone has an estradiol level that's up in the thousands it's worth maybe taking note of that and repeating it but that's all Mm. and if their estradiol level is less than 50 or less than 90 well maybe they're not they're not absorbing what we're giving them perimenopausal women like god help us are they're you're producing your own estrogen and it's 
because what we're prescribing is estradiol and we're measuring estradiol and your ovaries produce estradiol i can't tell when i do a blood test is this estradiol that you've had that, you know i'm measuring it because of what your patch has given you or what your ovaries have produced or both so okay yeah and so a lot of the fluctuation happens because your own ovarian function and production of estradiol is fluctuating in the background from month to month which is normal yeah yeah, yeah. So it creates a lot of untold stress <laughs> for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> another joyful part of menopause <laughs> part and parcel, yeah. but what we've got to remember is that you know menopause is a transition it is a chapter and you know i think it's all about ha having being able to make an informed choice so that you're living your optimum life and um, because we only have one life and it is so so precious there's something i don't know every day every week i just becomes more important to me that you know we sh no woman should be suffering in silence um, and wh whatever the treatment options are for an individual it's just so important that you can make an individualized informed choice totally agree yeah what would you say the first steps are for a woman to take you know say anyone listening who's just like maybe doesn't even know about menopause or maybe mm. he's just thinking okay maybe should I think about HRT or maybe you know should I be thinking about lifestyle where do you recommend to start I suppose it depends on how comfortable you are maybe having a conversation with your GP mm. having a conversation with maybe friends or family looking online for some good information some resources the British Menopause Society have a really good website called the Women's Health mm. Concern um, and they have a lot of patient information leaflets but there's countless others just be sure that what you're reading is reliable I mean it's a bit yeah. of a yeah cesspit of misinformation and it's there. becoming more of one I fear I do fear that um but yeah and and if you're symptomatic and you feel you know I think these symptoms are I mean, if you're still having periods, but you feel your symptoms are very cyclical, that's often something that's hormonal. That's worth a discussion. Or if you're mm. menopausal, if your periods have stopped and you have concerns or questions and you're symptomatic, reach out. But your GP or, you know, or someone who specializes in it, like myself, is probably a good place to start. Yeah. Even things like this, like podcasts, there's so much information yeah. that's out there. There's yeah. excellent webinars, excellent podcasts. You know, start to arm yourself with, with some information. questions and information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I suppose the more you learn, the more questions you have sometimes. Yeah. And then go in with your questions and write them down. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm forever saying it's a really, really good um, habit for women, particularly when they hit 40, if not beforehand, just to do that check in with their doctor on an annual basis, just to make sure. Because like I've spoke to so many women who have thyroid issues, who are anemic. There's different things that are happening and they literally now think, oh God, I'm perimenopausal. But in actual fact, there may be something else going on. Mimicking. Yes, yeah. exactly. But, and make sure you do it in the right order. That's the other thing. I think a lot of women go in and their kind of their priority is and then the, and the GP is maybe sort of swept along with that is to do blood tests where in fact we should be doing symptoms first. We should take a good history what's bothering mm. you mm. and base what blood tests we're doing off that yeah not the other way around mm. not just do a battery blood test and then say well these are the results and you can't be menopausal because your estrogen is normal because that's rubbish so it should be the right way around symptoms first how you feel your history and then do you need blood tests to tease to, that out a little yeah yeah because yeah. so many of those symptoms can look like a thyroid imbalance or anemic and other and sometimes they are other, yeah, yeah other other um issues um as well 
Um, we've covered a lot. <laughs> For anyone who listens to this, I'm going to kind of think they'll be like, whoa, okay, I need to replay that. That's not a bad, <laughs> that's not a bad thing. <laughs> um, but Quiva, any lasting thoughts you'd like to share? Have I mentioned vaginal estrogen enough in this, in this podcast? Can I mention it again? It's Everyone. going to be on my gravestone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or wherever I shatter my ash, ashes. Shatter but, your what? But, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. Look, I I, I started talking um, about vaginal dryness, I'd say probably about two and a half years ago on Instagram. And I remember after about six months, I started getting these messages. Catherine, I think you can stop talking about it now. <laughs> it was literally so I did stop for a while, but then I dip back into it every so often because it's the one symptom that if you ignore it, it does not go away. It, well, that's the problem. Know, and like you had said, say with cognitive function and different things, a lot of what we experience with menopause, they're just adaptions. Your your mm. brain, and it's mostly brain. Most of our symptoms are the the you know memory loss, the fatigue, a lot of the sleep issues, and even hot flushes and light sweats. They're actually like we think of menopause as all being ovarian and to do with our like you know you almost look down at your pelvis. Bikini medicine. Like that's where that's where my menopause is happening. But actually, it's your brain. Yeah. Ninety yeah. percent of it yeah. is brain, and it's your brain adapting to this new hormonal environment and mm. it will adapt for the majority of women over an undefined period of time that's where the difficulty is because for some women yeah. it could be a year for others it could be a decade but it will adapt for the mm. majority but vaginal symptoms and vulval symptoms don't improve so if yeah. you start having dryness yeah. you are going to get worse yeah and you know prevention is better than cure and all of that and also the vast 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 majority of women are eligible for vaginal estrogen mm. it will do them no harm most women can have it we should be handing it out there should be a public health <laughs> like letter that's issued at 50 or something like that yeah, yeah. and for yeah. younger women too it's just yeah yeah, yeah so here's a stomach. question here's a question on that passionate uh, topic ovestin uh, in vagus yeah. or vagifem what's your preference or vagi rocks uh, Vagi Rocks, tell Vagi me about that rocks. one. Yeah. Have well, I missed that? Oh no, I have seen that's new, isn't it's it? It's Vagi Fem, but without the application. That's right. Yes. Yes. It's a bit more environmentally yes. friendly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but same thing otherwise, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, could they please get someone in to rename all of these first of all? <laughs> My first issue is with the yeah. stupid names. Yeah. But um, I think it's personal preference. I tend to prescribe the small, tiny little tablets, so that's Vagi Fem or Vagi Rocks, yeah. as a first port of call because they're a bit more user friendly, I think. I've lots of women who love Invagis, I've lots of women who love Avestin. Avestin's oh. handy, the cream, because it can be used externally too, which is nice. I just think it depends on the person. Or the ring, the ring as well. Or the ring, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose we use a bit less of that. I don't really know why. The other three seem to be more. They're probably more user friendly or. Yeah. 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 Um, So all three are equally good, like Invagis and um, Ovestin have slightly kind of lower concentration of a slightly safer type of estrogen. But really, we're splitting hairs, actually, because at the end of the day, all of it stays pretty localized. It's incredibly safe. I think try all three, like find what suits Which, you best. Yeah. 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 It depends what way and what you're comfortable with. Not everybody's comfortable with inserting things and you know, it just yeah. depends on the person. That's a whole other, a whole other podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's for the next time. Quiva, thanks so much. And we'll share all your details in um, the show notes for people to contact you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks a million, Catherine. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Just to remind you, the Menopause Success Summit is happening on the 21st of May in the Radisson Blue in Cork. I would love you to join me at this event, which we're 
gathering together experts across various fields of menopause and I know you will get loads of practical information on the day so check out all the details at www.menopausesuccesssummit.com Thank you.